Would you like to buy some lemonade? It's that time of year. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about that icon of youth entrepreneurship. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is Stephen Kennedy. I'm a documentary photographer traveling far and wide to photograph artists making a difference in the world. My project is called Cross Country Camera. This series of photo essays captures creative individuals at work in their studios and places of inspiration. If you are an artist or if you know an artist that has a compelling story that needs to be told in pictures, go to crosscountrycamera.com and click the nominate button. Thank you. The idea of the lemonade stand goes back a really long way. And it's sort of this. A mom or dad puts in a little bit of resources and some effort, and then the kid sets up a folding bridge table out front, selling lemonade by the glass, and keeps the money. Now, as it evolved, first of all, it turned from real delicious ice-cold lemonade to something that was made from a mix and didn't taste very good, but that's not really why you were buying it. And then along the way, the great idea of turning a lemonade stand into free lemonade, but accepting tips, transformed the marketing of lemonade stands. And then leverage was added with sometimes kids hiring neighbor kids to man the stand, paying them a cut of what was collected and keeping the rest while they stayed inside and watched the Flintstones. But the thing about a lemonade stand is while it teaches kids a little bit about selling, it also teaches them a little bit about begging. And it doesn't really help you with the P&L if mom and dad are giving you the stuff for free. So why do people buy the lemonade? They buy the lemonade because it's cute, because the kid has a location that intersects with the adult's journey to their home. What are they buying for 50 cents? Or even better, when they leave a $2 tip and the lemonade is free. What they're buying is the way it makes them feel to support a kid. All of this begins a rant that is in response to one of the best questions we've received in 2021. Here we go. Hi, Seth. It's Vesta from New Zealand. I'm interested in starting a business that can grow and develop over time. My question is, how do you do that as an 11-year-old at school in a way that could be scalable? My 10 bad ideas in a rejection pile include a dog-walking franchise and a kid's party planning website. But I want something unique, and my parents want me to remain anonymous online. Thank you for considering my question. Thank you for this. It's a great question, and I love the proviso that you can't become some sort of internet celebrity. Because while it's true that that kid in Thailand has made millions and millions of dollars reviewing toys on YouTube, it's probably not going to be you. It's probably not going to be any kid. And the cost that a kid pays to turn themselves into some sort of uber-cute internet celebrity is too high a price to pay. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the magic of beginning a business when you're your age, 11, or for those of 
our listeners who missed that opportunity when they were 11 doing one now at 20 or 40 or 60 years old because it's very special. It's a certain kind of freedom, the freedom to pick your customers. Because unlike someone who has a regular boss, the cost of picking new customers is pretty small. When you get to pick your customers, you get a special kind of freedom and a special kind of obligation that comes with that freedom. Because when you pick your customers, you have to live with the repercussions of what you picked. Now, if you're a kid or an adult starting one of these businesses, which I will define in some ways as a bootstrap business, a business that you didn't have to spend a lot of money to get started, we begin with how much do you need to make doing this? Do you need to make enough to learn something or do you need to make enough to earn something for it to be worth the journey? Once you know how much you need to make, then we can do some simple math about how many customers do you need. Because if you're a kid with a free lemonade stand, 10 customers each giving you a $2 tip, even in Australian or New Zealand money, that's plenty. That's a good two hours work. Congratulations, you learned a lot of lessons. On the other hand, too often, because the internet makes it look easy, lots of people, adults included, say, I'm just going to get a million people to give me $2 each or $4 each, and I'll be fine. And the two problems are the million and the two or four, because you're not going to get a million people. And even if you do get a million people, they're not going to give you $2. That the trap of internet fame is that almost all of it is people just driving by noticing you, but they're not your customers. They're not there for you, and therefore you can't be there for them. This pyramid of how do I put an enormous amount of attention in, say, the bottom of the pyramid or the top of the funnel, and then out the bottom, get something that feels like a business, that might be the first mistake. The alternative is to seek out the smallest viable audience, to figure out who exactly needs what you're going to do and needs it so much that they will happily pay for it. And you can do that without becoming famous on the internet. So a simple example from a freelancer's point of view, there's an organization called the Editorial Freelancers Association. You can find them by searching for them in your favorite search engine. They have a job board. It's free. If you sign up for it, every single person who's looking for an editor, a copy editor, a freelance writer, they put that in and boom, it shows up in your mailbox. And if you want to bid or just take one of these jobs, there it is right in front of you. So there's an example of picking your customers. I want somebody who's editing a book. And boom, you have work to do, work without a boss. The challenge with freelancing, of course, is that you're at the bottom of the ladder, that it takes a long time to move yourself up the ladder if your motto is you can pick anyone and I'm anyone. So the challenge in front of the young bootstrapper, entrepreneur, lemonade stand owner is how not to start at the bottom rung. It turns out one way to do that is to really specifically pick your customers, to do something that almost no one else does. Another way to do it is to do something that doesn't really work with a lemonade stand, but works beautifully on the internet. And that is connecting people. Because connection 
is the new industrial entity. If industrialism, figuring out how to make stuff at scale for large numbers of people, was what happened before, several generations ago, the future is about connection. Because connection, creating community, that's really hard to turn into a commodity. If you can figure out how to create community for the people who need community created, magical things can happen. If you, for example, could build a worldwide co-working space just for 12 people, 12 people who have a lot in common, 12 people who need to know each other, 12 people who are looking for a Zoom room where they can sit for a couple hours a day and not be lonely while they're, I don't know, typing their novel, that room, if you could create that room for them by invitation only, plenty of those people would pay 50 or or $100 a month to be in that room. And your job would be to curate the room. Your job would be to secure the room. And suddenly, that's a lot of lemonade. So as we think about what does it mean to even start a project today, I think it's about community. Maybe it's all the babysitters in your zip code or postal code. Maybe they need a private Facebook group where they can collaborate with each other, where they can work with each other to figure out which are the good parents who pay well and treat them with respect, and which are the ones that need to be avoided. And Maybe as you start to build these communities, you don't charge for it at first because you're not good yet at building vibrant communities, but it also doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to go out and buy country time lemonade and paper cups. What you can do instead is find a platform, one where you are comfortable. It doesn't have to be Facebook. You could do it in discourse. You could do it in Discord. You could do it in a private Slack room. You could do it in a shared Google Doc. Yes, indeed, that there are countless ways that you can create this place where people want to come. And they don't have to know that you're 11 years old because they're not walking up to the folding bridge table in front of your house. What they're doing instead is seeing each other. So who invites them? How big does the group have to be? Does the group benefit by knowing one another? And to wrap this up a story, you may have heard me tell it before, but I can't get it out of my head. Years ago, AOL was my company's biggest client. This was before the World Wide Web. We were making stuff for AOL and CompuServe and the other online services. And AOL had a big conference, and they invited all of the companies that were making products and content for AOL to a convention center in Virginia to hang out for two days, to hear from Ted Leonsis and Steve Case about what the future would bring. And soon after I got there, a note was slipped under the door of my hotel room, a note from a guy named Tom. And Tom said, come to our suite tonight at 8 o'clock. We're inviting 15 of the other big companies that supply AOL. And when I got there, in fact, there were 14 other companies. And what we did for an hour and a half, in addition to getting to know one another, is we compared our contracts. We all learned which exceptions we got when we negotiated, who had the best deal on this and who had the best deal on that. And by collaborating with one another, by banding together, all of us got a better deal the next time we negotiated. How much was that room worth. I think it was priceless. So no, it doesn't matter 
whether you get $2 for inviting someone into one of these communities. What matters, whether you're organizing teenagers or kids or adults, whether you're organizing authors or people who are in the paint industry, what matters is that you are learning to use the medium in front of you to do what the medium is good at. In fact, they named it twice, inter-network. It is a network of networks. And learning to be good at that and doing it with confidence, that sounds like a great lemonade stand to me. Thanks for your question. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. There are show notes there as well. Two good questions this week. They're each a little bit long, but worth it. Here we go. Hi, Seth. Justin from Pittsburgh here. On the episode about Clubhouse, you talked about the question of who really owns your audience. And I'd like to ask a question about Kindle Unlimited, which is a place where a lot of my author friends have found success launching careers from scratch. Kindle Unlimited is basically Netflix for eBooks. And I found that it solves a problem that a lot of new authors have, namely that not a lot of people are willing to pay $5 or even $1 to read a book from an author that they've never heard of. On the other hand, plenty of people are willing to read a book for free with their Kindle Unlimited subscription, except it's not really free. They're paying $10 a month for the subscription, and the author gets a few dimes out of that. In fact, sometimes authors will actually make more money from a Kindle Unlimited reader than if the same person had bought the book for $0.99. Cents. The KU program is something that has helped a lot of authors break into the industry, especially those that have been plugging away for years, trying to break in through more traditional methods and finding no success. But I've also seen it the other way. Uh, Specifically, I have one friend who had a disappointing experience. She launched a career on Kindle Unlimited and was making a full-time living. And off the strength of that audience, she was able to sell a book to a traditional publisher. She got a hardcover book in stores, the whole nine yards. Unfortunately, she and her publisher discovered that the same readers who were willing to read her books 
for free on KU. We're not the same kind of people who want to spend 10 or $20 for a hardcover book, which by the way, she sees just a small fraction of uh, something that I'm sure you're familiar with from your time in the publishing industry. My question is uh, how we should approach platforms like Kindle Unlimited, because on one hand, authors are getting paid real money, in some cases, thousands of dollars a month, in, in some cases, the bulk of their income, money that they wouldn't have been able to make in traditional publishing. But on the other hand, it feels like authors don't really own their audience in the sense that the readers are more loyal to Kindle Unlimited and will balk at the idea of paying money for the book. I appreciate your insight. Thank you for this one. And we could talk about this all day, but I will try to be as cogent and concise as I can. The real question with things like Spotify, Pandora, Netflix, and Kindle Unlimited is who benefits? Well, the culture as a whole probably benefits, particularly in the short run, If more people can engage with more useful content or delightful content for less money over time. But what it does is it destroys the industry that used to be on top of that form of media. It destroys it as we know it because those industries were generally based on scarcity. If there's only a finite number of movie theaters and each movie theater can only play a finite number of movies, then a movie studio that has influence over what the theater's book is more likely to get its movies shown for longer, which gives them more money to build a certain kind of movie. That that's where record labels come from. That's where book publishers come from. Book publishing for the last at least 50 years has been primarily about pleasing the bookstore, not the reader. Why? Because if there's scarce shelf space, then the book publisher that has more shelf space in the bookstore will sell more books. Amazon was a disruptor to the very idea of the bookstore. But then when we overlay that with the Kindle, which takes away the scarcity that comes from paper, that's the first step to books getting very, very inexpensive. And classic microeconomics helps us understand that if something gets very inexpensive, it is likely to become more popular. So if you're the kind of person that likes literacy and books as a cultural artifact, then the Kindle is a good thing, even if it gives nightmares to people in the publishing industry who used to have a scarce thing, access to bookstores, but now self-published authors are at the same place as giant book publishing houses. You can't influence Amazon to get on the Kindle. Everybody is on the Kindle. And then we go one step further with Kindle Unlimited, pay 10 bucks or so every month, and you can get all the books you want. So this is good if you believe in books. But what if you're an author? Well, if you're an author... There's a challenge here because now you are one on a long tail. The long tail, as Chris Anderson wrote, is the place where there is easy access, easy in, easy out, anyone can play. That when we look at the stats, the last time I saw them from him for the Apple Store, the average song in the iTunes Store had sold 
one copy. That on average, most of the long tail is selling none. It's so far out there, people don't know about it. And my hunch with Kindle Unlimited is that if we did the math, the typical author isn't making thousands of dollars. The typical author is making dollars, not even tens or hundreds of dollars. Because if anyone can write a book, then anyone will write a book. And if you can get all the books you want for free, yes, there needs to be a short head for there to be a long tail. Yes, there are going to be some hits. Yes, there are going to be some authors that do okay. But it's rare indeed for a Kindle book to become a cultural phenomenon that everyone flocks to. The last one I can think of was Fifty Shades, and that was a long time ago, which means that the hits aren't ginormous, that the hits aren't big enough to make up for the long tail if your goal is to maximize your income. So your friend who got the publishing contract did something that was smart for her pocketbook, which is she moved from the place of abundance to the place of scarcity, saying to the world, if you want my book, you're going to have to pay for it, really pay for it. And she got an advance. But the book publisher, the book publisher should have known better in that, A, it's hard to get someone to move from, I got all the music I ever wanted from Pandora, now I'm going to go buy a record, to move from, I got all the movies I ever wanted to watch on Netflix, now I'm going to go to the theater, and to move from, I got all the books from unknown authors I want for $10, why should I go buy, quote, a real book? Especially if you have no way to reach these people. And Amazon has made, I think, a very significant error by not giving authors a chance to build a direct permission-based connection with their readers. And so if you are an author and your only goal is to be read, well then, I think it makes perfect sense to show up at Kindle Unlimited to hone your craft. It's not clear to me that that's the way to be the most read. The way to be the most read is to write a book a book based in scarcity, scarce shelf space, scarce paper, scarce, I only have a budget for a few books this month, and somehow write that book in a way that causes it to spread. But that's a hard thing for most authors to do. So that's a little bit of a discourse on how all of these pieces fit together. And I guess what I'm getting at is when Russ and the rest of the people at Amazon cooked up Kindle Unlimited. They didn't say, will this be good for the authors? They said, will this be good for the Kindle? Hi, Seth. This is Steve from Indianapolis. Uh, listening to your most recent episode in search of the worst CEO uh, reminded me, I've been a freelance project manager most of my career, a CEO of one. And I've now joined a firm and taken the role of managing director of a management consultancy in pharma and medical devices. And we believe in the power of extraordinary people working together to create lasting and important change. But what got me here won't get this company where it seeks to go. So my question is... Um, how do I learn about the finances, the sales and marketing, the HR, and all the other general management stuff that comes with uh, going from being a CEO of just myself to being the managing director of this company? What's your take on how to efficiently and effectively retool, essentially, mid-career? 
um, so that I can have those tools I need to help us get where we're going. Thank you for this one, Steve. It's a great question that gets rarely asked, and there are two parts to it. The first part you didn't really say, and the second part you did. The second part is, where do I go to learn these techniques? Because they don't even teach them in most business schools, the techniques of actual management. But the first part, the first part is really the challenge, and it's this. The good news is you already did it. Deciding. Deciding that you need to manage as opposed to just do what's always been done or deal with the incoming or give people orders. No, to actually find leverage through management. And deciding is something that I rarely see people do. They get promoted and they just do the next job, but they don't think about the fact that the next job might be the work of providing a foundation for people to do their work that what management is about is understanding the P&L, making strategic decisions, and mostly creating an entity that can scale in whichever direction you've decided to take it. So how to get better at that? Well, High Output Management by Andy Grove is one of the classics in the field. It might not be the style that you want to adopt, but it's insight into what it is to manage on purpose. The book, The E-Myth Revisited, I disagree with some of the things that are in the book, but The E-Myth Revisited, once again, helps us realize that our job at a smallish company is not to work in the business, it's to work on the business, to build structure. That if you read some of the letters that Warren Buffett has written over the years, if you look at how he and Charlie have built this giant entity based on the idea of management. And then, last book, Managing Humans. Again, it's about a deliberate, intentional approach to managing because that's your job, to figuring out how to bring strategy to the table. If you want to go one step higher when we think about management is Michael Porter's books on strategy. They might be a little too scholarly for the typical listener or reader, but I wanted you to know that Porter's ideas are out there as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out the Carbon Almanac for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.